Greetings, and welcome to the SLIS Colloquia, a program now in our seventh consecutive semester brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science here at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier, and along with Dale David, our technical producer, we are bringing you this series as part of our school's vision to be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science. Before I introduce today's speaker, a few announcements. Please look for our new colloquia presentations on the SLIS webpage throughout the term. You will also find there a webcast archive of all of our previous seven semesters of presentations on the SLIS homepage at sliswb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts. Details on how to access these presentations, either through the RSS feeds or the iTunes store, can be found on the colloquia page. Viewers can also watch the SLIS colloquia on Blip TV, the popular video sharing website. The SLIS Blip TV channel can be accessed at sjsuslis.blip.tv. For our students, I would like to encourage you to visit a special website detailing the social networking opportunities the school offers for you to virtually connect with uh, SLIS students. It's on our, it's, um, our own social networking wiki site. The school also maintains another wiki called Cool Web 2.0 Tools, which offers a way to share and learn about the rapidly changing resources you'll want to know about. I also might remind you that we maintain a, dyna a dynamic homepage that should become something else you check regularly for school updates, resources, and news. Those comments are for our SLIS students, but for everyone else in the SLIS community, I'd like to call your attention to the school's receptions this fall at several of our professional conferences. Our ARMA reception will be hosted by Dr. Pat Franks in Orlando, Florida in mid-October. Also in mid-October, Dr. Ken Haycock and the faculty will be hosting a SLIS reception at the annual Internet Librarian Conference in Monterey, California. And at the end of October, Dr. Haycock and the faculty will be hosting our annual reception at the California Library Association in Pasadena. All the details and RSVPs are available on our school's webpage, and we hope that, uh, that you will attend these professional conferences and take the opportunity to become better acquainted with the faculty, as well as meet up with classmates, friends, and colleagues. We hope you enjoy the colloquia presentations, and thank you for helping to make the series a success. Upon obtaining his PhD in social ecology at UC Irvine in 1999, Mike Mills moved to Santa Cruz to be with, he confessed, his own kind, aging 60s throwbacks. Mike has authored many unconventional articles on youth issues such as crime, drug abuse, pregnancy, and economics, with recent articles published in the Western Criminology Review, Scribner's Encyclopedia on Violence in America, The Lancet, the American Journal of Public Health, and the Journal of School Health. Dr. Mills has also published many essays and opinions in the popular press as well, including the New York and Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post, among many others. While teaching at UC Santa Cruz, he originated and taught courses entitled California Youth in Transition, Social Problems, Contemporary American Society, Drugs and Society, Race and Criminal Justice, and Youth and Crime. Mike is most widely known in youth study circles for his monographic work, um, much as uh, uh, his monographic works such as 
kids and guns, how politicians, experts, and press fabricate uh, fear of youth in 2001, as well as two works now considered classics in youth studies, Framing Youth, 10 Myths About the Next Generation, which he published in 1999, and Scapegoat Generation, America's War on Adolescence in 1996, among many other books and studies. He currently serves as a senior researcher for the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice, a San Francisco advocacy group, and is the principal investigator and content director for youthfacts.org. We're very lucky today to catch Mike for this interview while he was in town and away from his home in Oklahoma City. So Mike, a very strong welcome to uh, SJSU, and thanks most especially for making time to be with us here today at SLIS. Thank you for having me. So I've got a couple of questions, and we can take them where, where we like. Uh, first, though, I'd like you to, if you would, introduce and frame your body of work. Well, as you can guess from the introduction, um, I've been pretty unemployable most of my life. Uh, those books I appreciate, you know, classics have are often, uh, let's be generous here, not recognizing their own time, and I prefer to call these future rare books. So <laughs> be sure and get your copies now. Uh, but as a result, the result of all this, uh, I have wound up working at kind of the lower level of youth programs for about 15 or 20 years back in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. And a lot of this involved community work, working families, uh, wilderness projects with young people, uh, sometimes for weeks on end, uh, doing projects in national parks and building bridges and painting and that sort of thing. So it was kind of direct work. And uh, not just like seeing somebody uh, in your office once a week, uh, like uh, professionals might do. And one of the things I noticed is that uh, young people, at least in my view, are completely misrepresented in the public sphere, both in policy circles, uh, media, and so forth. Uh, there are many uh, aspects to, to young people that are much more complex and, in my view, much more positive than, than uh, they're popularly depicted. Well, then, this, uh, this next question really follows on, on that. Why has your work centered so much on young people? Well, in addition to this, this personal experience um, that uh, from working with young people in communities, I uh, uh, became very interested. It's, it's not simply the cliché that young people are the future. I mean, everybody says that, and sometimes I think we don't give a hang about the future. It's the present. How's the present working for us? That's, <laughs> that's mainly what we're concerned about. But uh, as far as, as younger people go, I, I think that they, many of the aspects I saw in their diversity and their flexibility, their reactions to situations, um, the kind of qualities they had interested me very much, not just from a personal standpoint in working with them, but also from a research standpoint. And I went back to school in the early 1990s, graduate school, uh, to study uh, the field that seemed most appropriate was social ecology at UC Irvine and uh, later uh, at UC Santa Cruz uh, taught sociology, as you mentioned. And I got very interested in some of the trends in our society and where they're going uh, because uh, we'll probably get to more of these later, but uh, there seem to be a combination of extremely hopeful and extremely dismal trends that are going on in the United States right now. And uh, I started getting interested in how you use those to predict and, and perhaps implement better policies. Well, uh, you are today speaking um, at, uh, at a library school. And so the, the School of Library and Information Science here in San Jose uh, is the largest library school in the world. We train and prepare um, professionals to work in lots of different information environments, but certainly libraries is, is the chief among them. What are some of the things that you might feel would be um, would be important for libraries to know about today's young people as well, an institution. You know, as an, as institution. an institution, I worked in libraries when I was in high school, um, and again, <laughs> as, uh, 
I, this, this will become redundant. At the very lowest level of, of libraries, I was confined to stacks. I don't think I was ever permitted to come out of stacks uh, the whole time that I worked in the Oklahoma City libraries. Oh, they let me out to read shelves, if, if you want to know the single most boring work I think that you can do in libraries. So, uh, you know, despite saying all that, I, I uh, spent quite a bit of time in libraries um, and, and you know, I, I think libraries and an institution, uh, and, and this is by no means unique in American society, but libraries and institutions uh, have some very problematic and troublesome and, and sometimes disturbing aspects of the way that they serve young people. And again, you, if you put them on a continuum, they're certainly not the worst institution in society, but, but you know, my impression of libraries, both in my memories as a young person many, many years ago and uh, current uh, sort of secondhand observation is that there are, uh, Libraries as institutions uh, provide a very valuable information service, especially to poor young people that can't afford their own um, computers, their own online um, access, uh, their own, of course, very few of us can afford subscriptions to magazines and, and the kind of information that libraries provide. So in that sense, it's, it's a tremendous resource for younger people who uh, don't have access to this information otherwise. Uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of aspects to libraries that seem to me to be youth unfriendly and that they uh, you know, there, there are many areas here in which I think there are going to have to be a lot of changes made, at least from my humble, from my outsider's point of view. If you were um, hypothetically put, uh, put in a place where you were administering, you were the, the chief of a library somewhere, a library director, um, what are some of the kind of things that you would want your staff to know about, about young people? <laughs> I can't remember if anybody's ever put me in charge of anything. <laughs> But uh, that, that's, a, that's a difficult question. That Usually people don't entrust me with that kind of... <laughs> what would I want my staff to know about younger people? Um, off the top of my head, I think what you see with younger people, and again, working with them and contrasting them with adults, because I've always been in environments where I work with both young people and adults in the same kinds of settings and the same kind of, um, same kind of circumstances. Uh, of course, vastly different power arrangements, but still you get to contrast how young people and adults handle things. And, and of course, there's tremendous variation within the two groups. I'm not trying to establish one group is this way and one group is the other. But what you see is uh, some tendencies among younger people, I think, toward a wider range of expressions. Uh, to give an example, uh, and I think this is relevant to libraries and even some library policy, if you go into a space that young people use in libraries, very often you'll see two people sitting to a chair. You won't see everybody doing that, but you'll see that occurring on occasion. Uh, you'll see uh, much more collaborative work, uh, say four or five people grouped around a computer screen or uh, a particular project that they're working on. So young people tend to use libraries a little more collaboratively. They seem to have a smaller physical space so that, that uh, uh, they're, uh, they're willing to, to be closer together. And uh, this, for some reason, uh, disturbs a lot of adults who worry about the order and uh, behavior that's appropriate to a library. So when you have a younger age group that engages in a wider range of expressions, there's a possibility that some of those expressions are going to offend other people, just because there's a wider range, if for no other reason. Not because most young people are doing them, but simply because there's a wider range. So when you have a wide range of expressions, and some of them offend other, other people, and you have a population that, I'll argue later, is stigmatized in the society, then you're very prone to get um, prejudicial kinds of responses. Well, they do this. Mm -hmm. um, and usually we're just one incident away, if that, from a policy, a prohibitive policy being introduced that then antagonizes younger people and makes them feel unwelcome in the library. So I think one of the things staff have to, have to recognize, or I would encourage them to recognize, is that this wider range of expressions incorporates ways in which libraries can be used very productively. 
I'm not going to argue that every expression that anybody brings into a library is automatically productive, but there are a lot of aspects to the collaborative work, the closer physical spaces, the wider variety of media that younger people use, the wider variety of dress, the wider variety of expressions in general that uh, really don't conflict with library goals and may even enhance them or give opportunities to broaden them. Um, but yet you rarely see adults engage in these kind of behaviors, and so our first impression is that those are improper. And then second, some adults are disturbed by them, uh, and, and so we then start looking at, at uh, restrictive policies. Well, th this, is, this is fascinating for a couple of reasons, but, but primarily because, I mean, I, I've written about this concept that I, I've been developing for a long time, that the libraries are demonstrative of a concept called the geography of no, right. where we have a long list of prohibitions. But you are, you worked in a library a long time ago, but you haven't worked them since, and you, right. you haven't studied them, you don't administer them. And yet, the idea of contrasting a wider range of uh, options or what you call expressions is something that you can observe casually. And yet, the library, with hundreds of years of collective experience, still institutes these kind of geographies of no. I think that's a fascinating con contradiction um, just, to, just to observe it Absolutely. at this point. Um, if we go on, though, there are a couple of ways we could go from here. But um, following on the, uh, the library as an institution thing, what, what are the kind of skill sets that would you imagine um, would help libraries be more successful uh, with young adults? Well, um, again, as, as you mentioned, I don't have much back background in libraries. Uh, and libraries, I, I want to say this continuously, are, are, uh, I'm not just criticizing them as an institution. I'm sure, for instance, college campuses, even liberal places like Santa Cruz get quite disturbed and, and uh, begin to, to froth and, quit and quiver whenever they see groups of high school students come on campus. And there's all kinds of rich rumors about what high school students are supposed to do on these campuses that have led to these same kind of geographies of no uh, throughout our society. So libraries are a part of society and they're going to have the same kinds of uh, assumptions about young people. Uh, that uh, that other institutions have a skill set. I you know that's really of, hard. The question. kinds of things that you would imagine would be good um, for professional libraries to have. Well, I think that they, there there has to be instead of the assumption, and this is very hard for all of us. We all have our little grievances. Whole television sitcoms are built around people, <laughs> you know, idolizing their grievances and, and turning them into uh, vast, uh, uh, you know lifestyle kinds of kinds of things. So I understand the tendency for us to have our peeves and, and to wish that somebody would pass a law or a restriction to, to accommodate our peeves. But as far as skill sets, I think it takes a, a very unique person to be able to look at um, a circumstance, especially young people doing things that, that your first reaction is, I don't like that. They're making noise. They're kind of boisterous. There's a little, there's some disorganization at that table. And my whole training in libraries is, is, is really, even if I don't have this myself, we know that, that people who who are the gurus of libraries uh, appreciate order and they appreciate quiet and they appreciate contemplation and meditation on all these things that go into scholarship. And yet these young people are being boisterous and they're collaborating on something and we think they're being lazy and not getting anything done and they're disrupting other patrons. I wish we could step back and look at this a little more objectively. How are they using the library? Uh, what ways can the library uh, enhance their particular use of it? Uh, rather than having, like you say, the first thing being no, no, no. So you would you would characterize then one of the one of the skills would be um, a sense of I don't know um, humility for oh, one okay. thing humility looking at the situation yeah. as it is as opposed to the the ideal concept that we may have in our legacy or our past of, of service correct yes you know uh, think of a medieval institution uh, 
I know so little about libraries, I don't even know what a medieval library would be like, but think of the term medieval library. We expect high vaulted ceilings and absolute science and Gregorian chants in the background <laughs> and that sort of thing that would go with, a, with our concept of, of the library that Isaac Newton or whoever would have, would have uh, gone into. And libraries today, uh, you know, serve much more diverse populations and cultures. And I think that would, like many institutions in society, and maybe not even as bad as many institutions in society, libraries have failed to appreciate how fast we are moving in terms of, of a vast array of cultures. And young people being the leading edge of those cultures are often blamed. So I think a skill set, first of all, involves humility. Um, I think that uh, because I reached 58 years old, that therefore I know a whole lot of things, and other people ought to defer to my knowledge. And then I realize a lot of the things I knew were appropriate to the 50s and 60s and no longer apply. So some kind of humility. Uh, flexibility, uh, again, in a, in a diversifying society, people have to think uh, in general, uh, get out of these tribal kinds of things that we're in, that uh, there's one way of doing things and one way of acting. Uh, and uh, the third thing, which is really kind of a philosopher king type of thing, is how do you balance those with genuine library interests? You don't want people having shootouts in libraries because, you know, somebody might think that's their particular kind of expression. <laughs> or, uh, you know, th there are behaviors that, that nobody, including young people, are going to appreciate in a library. And, and it seems to me there are some of those to focus attention on rather than trying to pick fights with people because they peeve us. You know, they annoy us. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back with you for some consult because I'd like to make some assignments that involve humility and flexibility mm -hmm. in my 261. So maybe we could start working on some of those assignments, what would those look like? Um, I'm superior <laughs> at humility. I excel at humility. <laughs> um, yeah. For the last year, you have been uh, working on the, um, an IMLS research team with three of our SLIS graduate students uh, studying young adult spaces, as it happens. Uh, what's your experience been like on that project, and would you care to share any of your observations about it? Well, we're at a very preliminary stage on this project, and uh, I have to say I have some surprises because uh, my, my impression of libraries were, again, as orderly institutions that practically clicked along in their efficiency and their, you know, uh, their, uh, uh, their metrics, that the, their measures of things. You know, I always assume that the circulation statistics, you know how you look in the almanac and the library will have so many items. Uh, you know, the New York library system has 250 million items. I have no idea what this means uh, when I started thinking about it. And you see libraries that you think are very large and prestigious, and they don't have as many items as, as you, you know, some library that you think is not. So you wonder, how, what, what do they mean by an item? And the same problem is with circulation. What's circulation? And I, you know, when I, the more we've gotten into this and looking at some of the literature that's been produced, particularly on youth and young adult spaces, is uh, it's really an amorphous world. There is very little hard data for, uh, that goes into planning youth spaces probably more into planning than anything else, but then in measuring how they're evaluated, how do we do it? How do we know whether they're being used, whether they're, uh, they, what's being used, what's not being used, what are some of the benchmarks, what are some improvements that can be made? All those things are tremendously difficult, and uh, that was, I guess, one thing that surprised me is there's this really this kind of quicksand of, of uh, difficulty in, 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 in just finding out basic things you want to know about these spaces. And uh, you and I visited some spaces in, in Oklahoma libraries, and, and you know, uh, it's almost as if downtown libraries, and, and this, this will get back to this SLIS thing, have no interest in, in, in many cities in having young people come into them because their youth space is very uninviting, and you actually see the teenagers that do come in using adult spaces. 
So uh, as far as this grant uh, goes, I, I think that uh, one of the questions I ultimately want to, uh, uh, want to think more about is, to what extent do you need a youth space? What extent do you need to separate younger people from older people due to, from a benign sense, a divergence of interests, uh, concentrating resources where people are most likely to use them efficiently and those resources being different for younger people and, and older people, uh, to, to, from that benign standpoint, to the idea of actually segregating younger and older people because of conflicting ways of using libraries that are incompatible primarily to older people. So, uh, you know, I'm hoping this grant will at least, uh, this, this grant study will at least get to looking at some of the questions of, from the most basic as to why do we have youth spaces at all to then how to maximize uh, youth spaces so that they, they do a, a best service this wider range of expression that I think young people manifest. Well, let's take a, a little step back then and start using some of your, um, your sociologists and ethnographers' muscles. How might you compare and contrast uh, a national assessment of youth? Did you say muzzles? No, no, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> how might you compare and contrast uh, a national assessment of youth as opposed to the California youth experience? Oh, I, actually, I think muzzle was a pretty good uh, comment. Oh, that's, that's later. <laughs> oh, muscles, muscles. Muscles, okay, yeah. Muscles, oh, okay, yeah. Um, California, this has been an absolutely fascinating state, and I don't say that because everybody says that about California, whether they're scowling or, or smiling when they say it. Um, as far as I can tell, this is my, a lot of my work in demography and in designing this California Youth in Transition class, demography and epidemiology both, is that uh, never before on the planet have we had a symbol, to my knowledge, uh, a place with major representations from all major continents. On our, well, we will skip Antarctica for the moment, but Africa, Asia, um, of course, Europe, uh, Latin America, uh, Middle East, major representations of these populations. Uh, it's absolutely amazing the level of diversity that there is in this state. Uh, the second thing has been the completely unexpected um, results, uh, again, approaching this from a demographer standpoint or an epidemiologist, the results of that. The prediction would be, and I think you would find this among a lot of more liberal people as well, uh, although they would phrase it uh, politely, is that you would expect a diverse multicultural society to be one that is constantly in conflict. And we certainly see a lot of political conflict. There is cultural conflict. There's a culture war going on right now, which is essentially, uh, should we retreat to the 1950s and what we presume they were, the imaginary 1950s, <laughs> or should we move forward into this unknown of, of what happens when you have a great deal of diversity in a culture? Uh, so there's a cultural war going on. But if you look at the actual behavior statistics, statistics the things that people are concerned about, what you see is a tremendous improvement in almost every aspect of public safety uh, over the last uh, 40 to 50 years. So as California became more and more racially diverse, especially among its younger people, the state's uh, major problems, and this is something most people I think would be very surprised to hear because if you read the newspapers uh, or watch television or accept uh, any commentary, you would think that things are just getting worse and worse and worse. From a behavior standpoint, we're seeing major declines in things like crime and suicidal behavior uh, and serious drug abuse, at least among younger people. Um, that we've never seen, this, these plummeting kinds of, of, of uh, declines. So there's kind of a synergy, at least a preliminary or, or a tentative uh, kind of synergy that let, comes about. Let me that. stop you before you go on and continue. Well, I will go on for hours, so you <laughs> stop me. But you just said something that's, that a lot of people viewing this interview will view as completely contradictory Correct. to what they know. Correct. So let me ask you before you go on with that, where do you get the data and, and the uh, evidence to support these, these radical declines across all of these behaviors? 
Well, I spent a lot of time, California, call an agency in Sacramento and ask them about the statistics they keep and the data that they keep and you will have a truck backing up to your door. At least you would have before the budget cuts. Uh, and, and California assembles probably some of the finest um, uh, data sets on, on very basic things like homicide, suicide, drug overdose, uh, school dropout, um, uh, you know, just, just every kind of statistic you can imagine. And so you look at these, you can't just take statistics at face value either. You have to look at the quality of the data, what's left out, what is poorly measured and that sort of thing. But when you, when you put all this together, and especially for crime, California, I'm convinced, has the finest crime statistics going back half a century of, of any state uh, or, or country in the world. And what you find when you go back uh, is, is that things were much, much worse in the past. And this is even more impressive because in the past, statistics gathering was less efficient than it is now. You know, there were people that died and we never found them. So um, when, when you add up, the, the, again, a consensus of the data, you can't just look at one thing and say that's what's happening. In fact, that's what, that's what uh, people get a lot of impressions on. You'll see a newspaper article that says gangs moving into the suburbs, Los Gettos has gangs, <laughs> um, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, it'll usually result from one very singular kind of thing that happened. But when you look at the collective data for the whole state, for the populations that are here, what you see is, is uh, both an improvement and a synergy in, in the sense that uh, some of the behaviors that were problems among more affluent populations have declined, such as drug abuse and suicide have declined, and some of the behaviors that were more prevalent among poorer populations, such as homicide and, and things like that, uh, uh, serious crime, have uh, also declined. And so the groups are becoming somewhat more alike in their behaviors. Uh, that was unexpected to me because, again, sociologists are thinking in terms of people being at risk or people being, um, you know, if, if the poorer population of the state increases faster than the richer population, you're going to have problems. So anyway, to, to not go on for hours about this, uh, I'm very encouraged by the actual trends. What I'm not encouraged about is the depiction of those trends uh, for a whole variety of negative purposes. Well, let's uh, push past that a little bit more and, and then explore the implications of those kinds of uh, impressions. Um, if you're talking about one set of data or lots of sets of data that prove one trend over time, but the larger public discourse is dystopic and negative and right. so forth, specifically on young people. What are some of the public policy currents oh. that you pick up as a consequence of monitoring th these things, as, um, specifically with respect to young people? Why does California have a budget crisis? This is the richest, one of the richest places on earth in California. We have a larger, richer population than almost anywhere else in the world. I mean, uh, it's incredible to me that we should have a budget crisis. And the root cause of it, in one sentence, is that people today pay 30% less taxes per unit of income than we did 30 or 40 years ago. So I think a lot of the negative reaction has been over time, and again, uh, I realize we have limited time here, but a lot of the, a lot of the reaction to this diversity and diversifying population, you know, and you can document this with specific public policies, is a reaction against diversity, a visceral act reaction that these are not our kids. We don't have to pay tax to support them the way our grandparents um, who's the we parents in, this, and in this scenario? The people who vote, basically. People who install people in power and, and then the, the people to whom people in power are responsive. Not the whole population of the state. Uh, so if you go back to um, 1970 and listen up to this, uh, the tuition at San Jose State University was about $90 a year. Uh, it, it's a year? A year. The tuition was about 90 bucks uh, a year. Now it's in the thousands. I don't know how much. Uh, 
at UC, the tuition uh, was something like um, $200 a year. It wasn't even called tuition back then. It was called registration fees. Yeah, registration or incidental fee. And you got health services. You got, of course, your full year's tuition. And now, what is it, eight or 9000 bucks to go to UC for a year. That's far outstrips inflation. And the, re the reason is that taxpayers have steadily cut back their support of the university uh, and other public services in California. At the same time, we've decided to fund a massive prison system to lock up a whole lot of people based on the idea that crime must go up if we have a uh, diversifying population. Now, a lot of this is visceral reactions. Libraries will have these same visceral reactions. Uh, and uh, to me, there is almost nothing to support the idea and everything to refute the idea that this state is a more dangerous or destructive place than it was 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And my gosh, if you go back to the gold rush, there's just no comparison. The state was so much more dangerous 100 or 150 years ago than it is today. The nostalgia to me is just, uh, you know, I can see liking, I don't know, maybe a television show or two from the 50s that you miss, but uh, I don't miss that era in terms of it being a safer, more serene, more uh, fulfilling time to be alive. This is a great time right now, I think. Well, you're talking currently uh, in terms of policy and so forth. They're referring it to taxes and public services. Right. Are there other areas of public policy that you can imagine just butt up against this, the, the analysis that you, that you find? Well, since the general topic here is youth, um, yes. Uh, the idea of a curfew, uh, and San Jose being one of the worst places uh, for curfews, um, my understanding, again, from reading the newspaper, should investigate a little bit more than that, but there are curfews that surround specific public events that people under 18 cannot attend after a certain hour. Uh, there's a citywide curfew that was enforced a great deal back in the 90s. The idea of a curfew is that there is a whole class of, of uh, in this case of Santa Clara County, hundreds of thousands of people that must be banished simply because of, of an innate characteristic, temporarily innate, their age. Uh, and, uh, you know, that they, they simply cannot be in public space. And if you take uh, curfews that have been enacted and recommended by various law enforcement agencies and politicians, uh, we would, uh, and we enacted them as recommended, we would have a country in which young people could be in public only a couple of hours at that of, in most days of the year. That's, that's absolutely insane. I don't think we realize how crazy it is. Uh, and our studies of curfews for the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice is that they're very counterproductive, that most, because most young people are law-abiding, they actually make public spaces more lawful than if you spend a lot of police time banning them and policing them and getting them out of it and leaving empty public spaces that are then more prone to crime. So uh, and this, by the way, has some implications for libraries. If, uh, assume, assume for a moment a library that doesn't want young people coming in. Uh, the presumption would be that it would be a safer place. My argument would be no, it probably would not be. Uh, because um, uh, uh, most young people uh, have uh, a lot of, uh, as much interest as anyone else in, in, in having a, a reasonably safe society. So, you know, curfews, the, kind of, the kinds of censorship proposals that we're seeing just seem off the wall to me. The kinds of imaginary, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about a couple of these because censorship in libraries have been a great, a great issue of great interest to libraries. Uh, you know, the kinds of public policies and the fear that drives them in these maniacal uh, articles and, and uh, uh, broadcasts in the press creating all kinds of fear around incidents that are almost non-existent or would never we would never try to create fear of adult groups based on these kinds of things. Uh, very troubling, I think. Well, at the risk of uh, painting you as something of a, a public policy Darth Vader, uh, let's, flip, <laughs> let's flip the script a little bit and have you talk about if you see any... Uh, <laughs> um, are there any positive developments that you see um, either in policy or in other areas that, that might give you some cause to be optimistic 
about the uh, amazing statistics that you're finding in, in California, especially? Well, we've gone over the statistics themselves. Uh, I'm very interested in whether there are legitimate grounds. I, if people are afraid of something, to me, it's legitimate to look at whether this is something to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. I mean, if somebody says, uh, don't pick up rattlesnakes, um, yeah, that's paranoia about a class of creatures. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's fairly reasonable not to do that. Um, so I'm encouraged by the fact that there doesn't seem to be any empirical grounds. And, and I've spoken at a lot of conferences. I've sat in front of prosecutors, in front of law enforcement agencies, audiences. Uh, I've uh, talked to, uh, you know, on panels with people who vehemently disagree with me. And I'm pretty well convinced that they got nothing as far as, as the idea that society is becoming more dangerous. There are certainly areas of society that are, and they always have been. And uh, I don't want to diminish the public concern about the fact that there are uh, certainly some problems in American society, and some of them are co highly concentrated kinds of problems. I don't want to diminish that, but they're not worse than they used to be. And as a society, we're safer, uh, I think, and uh, uh, healthier, uh, really, than we have a right to be, given our, our dismal public policies. So I'm very encouraged by the statistics themselves and by the fact that, realistically, there doesn't seem to be any reason for people to be so afraid of a diversifying uh, society, especially diversifying as it coming up through the age groups of, of its younger people. Uh, the other encouraging thing I see, and it's developed as, as a political kind of thing, and, and again, I guess people can guess where I stand politically. I won't go into detail about it. but. We have seen some political movements recently uh, involving both demonstrations and direct action and also political campaigns that have begun to recognize, even at the top levels, uh, not just at the bottom levels, but at the top levels, that young people are extremely important in political change. Uh, they're not only instigators of direct actions like demonstrations, and I mean high school students here, uh, whether you're talking about the, the 60s or you're talking about now, direct instigators of, of action, but also uh, will uh, turn out and support uh, and work for candidates and electoral issues uh, under certain circumstances, which are interesting to, to study. And not only that, will turn out in huge numbers. And the attitudes of younger people uh, in polls and surveys are much more communitarian, they're much more egalitarian in terms of uh, the rights of various groups in society. The kind of things you would want to see um, if um, uh, we're going to have, and we are going to have, a diversifying society to the point where there's probably going to be, as in California, the whole country, will have no racial or ethnic majority, mm -hmm. first major country. Let me give you one quick example of the, of, the, of the difference I see in older generation and younger generation thinking. There was a poll by Public Agenda a few years ago which asked uh, adults to characterize teenagers and teenagers to characterize adults. Adults overwhelmingly were negative. Seven in 10 said used negative stereotypes of teenagers. You know, loud, rowdy, lazy, um, you know, those kinds of things. And, and seven in 10 said, uh, young people are going to make this a worse society. Seven in ten. Seven in ten adults said that. First of all, you know, I think, uh, well, never mind what I think about adults. But that was, that was a blanket kind of comment. You know, there's no way that any adult answering that survey could have met 40 million or even a representative sample of 40 million teenagers and young adults in this country. So it's, it's simply prejudice on their part. Now they ask teenagers what they thought of adults. And, you know, by this time I was reading this, I was getting kind of mad because all the press coverage and public agendas, uh, the institution's coverage of this was, was uh, this survey was that young people are terrible because adults think they are. And so I was already for teenagers to say young adults are terrible. Or, I'm sorry, adults. to say adults are terrible. What teenagers said in this response to this was that some of them are, some of them aren't. I mean, how can you ask a question like that? This was basically hmm. the answer they gave. And they came down to the idea that, well, you know, most adults are pretty good people. Well, there's a few that aren't. 
Now, if you think of the complexity of thinking in these two kinds of responses, who do you want in a diversifying culture, people who see a whole group of people in mass stereotype, simply because they can, we have the power to, and have the media conform to our view of them, or people who say, let's, look at, let's try looking at people as individuals. Uh, you know, maybe we'll like some of them, maybe we won't. Uh, it's a simple kind of thing, but it really stuck out in that poll to me. Uh, what, what year was that poll? That wasn't too long. That was 1999, and then another one, I think, in around you know, 2001, something like that. Basically the same thing. Yeah, pretty recent. And they'll show up in other surveys, too. Younger people have simply more flexible, more egalitarian, more kind of uh, community attitudes in the sense that uh, they want to rely more on uh, communities than they do on just individual. Well, what would you say here at this point, after listening to, to the way you're, you're defending these and criticizing these kind of policies and what they're based on, what would you say to somebody who said, well, listen, you know, males, he thinks that young people are all good in lightness <laughs> and adults are, you know, are awful and they're terrible people and they don't vote for anything and they just, they're, they're about negative things for young people. How would you respond to that kind of uh, criticism? Well, um, I can see how people would interpret what I say as that and to some extent um, I could see how I would interpret what I say as that. Uh, it's not exactly the case, and, and again, uh, I think we all know that younger people encompass a wide variety of, of behaviors, some of which, uh, bringing it back to libraries, are not going to be acceptable in libraries, but uh, what I worried about is, is the idea that uh, we simply uh, misinterpret and misclassify behaviors as being somehow detrimental to an institution and pass a rule uh, you know, uh, that stigmatizes a whole class of people. So. Uh, I, I, I do, you know, again, having worked with younger people, I can certainly say, yeah, there's some younger people that were jerks and, and uh, some who thought I was a jerk. And, you know, this is all part of the individuality that goes in to a society and the idea that if you're going to have a diverse society, you can't simply make assumptions about people based on, on some of your own annoyances. Um, second, as far as adults go, let's look at that public agenda survey uh, the other way around. Despite the fact that there has been tremendous, relentless negative publicity about younger people through the media, three in ten adults said they thought young people would make society a better place. That shows a lot more flexible thinking than we often associate mm -hmm. with grown-ups. Um, that they were able to see through a lot of, of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, bigoted treatment that, that younger people receive in the media and from institutions and even uh, people who should know better, like academics. Well, I say that and then I say, why should they know better? But uh, <laughs> You know, uh, let's let's say that let's hope you're charged in society with with thinking and, and studying and putting out information. So yeah, yeah, it's your job to, to, to I guess, to do that. You're being paid to do that. Um, that the, the three in ten adults, or at least a substantial minority of adults, were able to see that that uh, yeah, things are actually going a little better than most people think, and, and younger people are going to make this a better society, which I think is you know the correct interpretation, not knowing what the future will be like, a better interpretation. Uh, unlike um, a lot of the work that librarians do, um, in most cases, uh, where librarians are helping people gain access to information, your entire body of work floats on constant consumption, critical consumption of information. And since you're at a library school, I thought I might ask, what are some of the things that you read, whether online or in print version, to keep up with all of this stuff? Most of what I consult now are raw data sources. So uh, I think wherever you can, uh, regardless of, of what area you're looking at or studying, go to the original source. And, and that's true if, if your idea is, is Shakespeare. I mean, 
it's like reading a review of Shakespeare or somebody else's interpretation of Shakespeare versus reading Shakespeare. So, you know, same thing with uh, what people say are statistical trends in society. Whenever you can, go to the original data because one of the things you'll find out is how much problems there are with original data and all these interpretations that are being made that are just not warranted from the quality of the information. So you have to be able to evaluate the quality of information. Uh, fortunately, and I think this is a wonderful thing, we live in an age in which information is instantly available. All, just tons, more information than you could possibly guess. It's hardly anything that you can't uh, go to a search engine and type in words and not find somebody who's asked the same question and asked some information on it, and, and hundreds of sources and sometimes millions of pages that you can go to uh, to access that. So the, the idea of our age is not so much in knowing facts, free-floating facts, like who was the fourth president of the United States. I couldn't tell you the fourth president of the United States is off the top of my head, but I could find it out uh, given a, you know, a screen in two or three seconds. So why do we have to memorize, rote memorization that formed most of education and most of library information provision of the past so that when students came in there, the first thing they headed to was the World Book Encyclopedia or the Britannica to find facts or the mm -hmm. almanacs. Mm -hmm. Now the whole challenge of, of learning is interpretation. So. And that's a big challenge. People act as if oh, kids are dumb today because they don't know this or they don't know that. They can find it out in two seconds. Whatever it is you think they don't know, what we really want kids to be able to do, and younger people as well as older people, is to be able to know where to find a particular piece of information that they need. But even more important, how to evaluate that information, how to criticize it. Or if we're going to be postmodern here, how to interrogate it. How to actually subject it to more than just critical scrutiny, but actual relentless um, uh, you know, relentless uh, investigation, and that is a, a real skill. That's tough stuff. Um, I fall short of it myself, uh, and I certainly see people not asking questions that they should be asking about the quality of information. And again, libraries, being information providers, are at the center of this, uh, just as the Internet is. Uh, one of the things you'd want, you asked earlier about skill sets for staff, is this idea that we can help you find a fact, but that's just the beginning. That's just 5% of the way into this question. Uh, there will be competing facts. There will be or things that are called facts that are competing with each other. There will be high quality and low quality. Uh, what do we mean by that? How do you determine that? On and on. Um, fortunately, that's an area demography has been interested in for a long time, but it's, it's a very difficult, beyond the, interesting uh, area. Uh, beyond the raw data that you're talking about scanning all the time, uh, I know that you read, uh, I think you mentioned before that you read widely from uh, new sources uh, from, from, from other countries even, but what are some of the kind of things that come off the top of your head that you scan on any kind of regular basis? Well, to tell you the truth, I've really dropped off looking at the news media a lot in terms of, uh, you know, stories about younger people because they got so repetitive. I mean, yeah. it just became a waste of time. It was aggravating. <laughs> I had, originally when we started um, youthfacts.org, which I guess we'll mention briefly in a minute, um, the idea was that we would critique news media articles for both good and bad, but unfortunately mostly bad, uh, the information that they impart on younger people and we would look at what they were saying because most statements when you think about it that are made about general, almost all general statements about younger people, their trends, their levels of behaviors are numerical statements. They're a statement that you have to attach a number to. So if you say young people are worse today than they used to be, then you have to say, well, what, by what index are they worse? Well, they're more violent. Okay, is there more injury? Is there more death? Is there more crime? Uh, what index are you using? Then we go to those indexes and we look and we find exactly the opposite's the case. So we, Youth Facts is going to be a vehicle to do that kind of thing with popular media. 
I started out, we went through, and anybody who goes to this website will see exactly that there was a cutoff point about, I guess it was about a year ago, where it was just got so repetitive it was pointless to do it anymore. Every news story on younger people was the same story. Bad and getting worse. And the only exception to that was when some group wanted to take credit for improving them, and then there would be a story on how this group had saved young people or this <laughs> author with their program. Uh, that just gets tiresome. I'm sorry. I, I, I fell down here and didn't keep up with my work on that. So the news media has been, uh, to me, almost, uh, and again, evaluate it for your own purposes, but uh, for my purpose it was just getting too dismal. Other sources of information? I don't know. I think sometimes we see better representations in fiction and fictional media of younger people. Mm -hmm. At least then there's some diversity. You know, uh, well, you're, I know you're a big fan of uh, the OC. <laughs> I am, I am. You know, um, we all have our indulgences, and, and I, I really was interested in the interplay of adults and youth in the OC. And the fact that this was one of the most, if you think about it, mushy-headed liberal programs that's ever been, because everybody turned out to be good in the end. <laughs> everybody was redeemable. And the kids and the grown-ups, in, in not at all sappy ways, there's a lot of terrible things that happened in that show, but it's kind of a soap opera for those, for those two or three of you out there who haven't seen it. Um, you know, a uh, lot of terrible, awful human behavior throughout this whole thing, but they uh, were very good in showing this kind of integration of younger people's immediacy and flexibility, if we're going to take a stereotype, what can you do in fiction, uh, versus uh, older people, in this case a, a very liberal lawyer's uh, experience with the system. And I thought it was a fascinating program. Um, and, uh, you know, there are various aspects of fictional media. I think Stephen King, for example, does a very good job with adolescents and children in terms of portraying them as diverse, not Pollyanna, not all good, uh, but uh, the kinds of things that, that uh, are much more, uh, what would you say, varied and individualistic treatments of younger people than you, you ever see in official documents or, or newspapers or television broadcasts. Good. Well, uh, in, in, in the library world, when you, were, when you would be interviewing for a library uh, position, we would throw a few questions at you that are called situational questions. Yeah. So I have a couple of situational questions. So. Uh, what do you make of this? Um, a recent development in neurobiology has been getting some, that's been getting some sort of interdisciplinary traction across a lot of fields that deal with young people. It's this thing that we're now calling the teen brain. Right. So the situational question is, what do you make of that work? Well, as a general statement, be afraid, be very afraid of consensus. Good. Consensus very often means, and I, again, you, no generalization is worth a damn, including this one. But no, consensus generally means that uh, some very diverging interests have reached the lowest common denominator in what it is, uh, you know, the safest thing to say. The safest thing to say is that a population that is being stigmatized in society has biological, is biologically different from the rest of us. The teen brain argument is, is you know, again, from a neurological standpoint, is, is just a crock. Uh, we have a lot of modern neuroscannings that produce uh, bright uh, images on the screen and they can point to various way, different ways in which, quote, an adolescent brain processes a stimulus compared to an adult brain. But nobody has any idea how to interpret that. They find the same differences between, or similar differences between men and women. They find it across cultures. Uh, and so we've just decided that because we can say teenagers are impulsive and irrational and all these bad things that, that we will say it in almost the same language that we used to stigmatize people racially or immigrant groups a hundred years ago. Except now we have, uh, we have bright colored images on screens. The people who work with neuroimaging seriously, not the people who grandstand in the press, um, are uh, very skeptical of, of the value of this research right now, that right now it's in its infancy, it's in its very 
very preliminary stages, and you can't possibly connect these, these uh, neural impulse imagings to, uh, to actual behaviors, translate them into behaviors. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, when you look at teenage and adult behaviors, you see way more similarities, and especially under the same conditions. Uh, then, then you do differences. There's not this vast difference between the teenage brain and the adult brain. Now, having said that, I think uh, people will see, even, even uh, benign observers over time, some differences, and I mentioned them. I think you go into a teen space, you will see slightly different behaviors amongst a, a slightly larger number of youths than you would see among adults. I've never been to a library where I saw two adults sitting in the same chair, for example. <laughs> um, but you will see that in teen spaces. Uh, so there are some differences, but they're not um, the kind that um, uh, you can put on a continuum of uh, primitive to sophisticated or, uh, you know, immature to mature. You know, frankly, I, I'm surprised at the immaturity of adult behaviors, including my own, that if we looked at them objectively, hmm. we would say, wow, there's something wrong with our brains. So I think the teen brain research has been a real detriment in its interpretation. Not, not the you know, research itself is neutral, but the, um, the interpretations of research have been very detrimental, and they've encouraged people on all sides of the spectrum to reach a lot of hasty conclusions that they think, well, if we reach a beneficial conclusion, if we get more funding, or if we get a law passed that we want, uh, then therefore, uh, you know, uh, this is a good thing. But it's not. I mean, so the teen brain thing to me is just an expression of old prejudices. Uh, given a biological veneer, uh, but uh, I do think that there are some some genuine tendency differences, and, and uh, those are not necessarily negative. Uh, let me move on to another kind of a situational question, um, and that is, uh, you might be familiar with the uh, Maplewood, New Jersey Library dust-up uh, not too long ago. Right. Uh, what's your understanding of that situation, and, and what did you make of it? My understanding is Maplewood, New Jersey is a suburb, uh, formerly almost all white suburb, uh, in New Jersey that has uh, experienced considerable uh, um, in-migration of black and Hispanic, uh, may, uh, and again, most heavily in its public school system. This Maplewood library in question sits next to a, a middle school, I believe, and the middle school students get out uh, early in the afternoon and they have no place to go, so they come over to the library while they wait for their working class parents to come and pick them up. That's my impression of what was going on. Uh, the library has insisted that the behaviors of these middle school students are absolutely intolerable, there's too much noise, that these kids don't understand when they're being told to be quiet. And the library claims, at least in the press, that they've had to call the police every day. So on that side, you have one set uh, to deal with these kids. So on that side of the equation, you have uh, what sounds like a very serious situation. And, and of course, the press goes no further than that. They're simply accept and, and will even embellish and say the unacceptable behaviors of young people today you know, again, from almost no empirical evidence. To generalize to all young people. Oh, all libraries across the country are facing this problem. Um, again, I remember plenty of rowdiness in libraries 40 or 50 years ago that I'm sure people then were attributing to the worsening behaviors of kids today, <laughs> uh, back when I was growing up, and who knows, maybe they were right. But uh, this, the Maplewood situation uh, drew national attention because the library decided to uh, actually closed the library during a couple of hours in the afternoon when the middle, just coincidentally, when the middle school students were most likely to be there. And they uh, fortunately got some very uh, negative reactions, uh, including mostly, in fact, from libraries across the country, that this, this was contrary to the library's ideal of inclusiveness. So in this sense, maybe a traditional library attitude that we really should be inclusive uh, toward the community. And when I say traditional, I don't know how old it would be. Um, uh, really, uh, comes to the fore here and, and, and is a beneficial thing. 
And so they were forced to, uh, more or less forced to uh, abandon the policy. But one of the interesting things to me is I looked at the particular policies they had, and they had, of course, a, a policy against excess noise or what would happen to you if you were warned more than once about making noise, and then also a policy against grooming another person. <laughs> and I wondered where this came from. What was the anti-library nature of, of grooming, interpersonal grooming that was going on in this library that required it to be stuck into a policy and then a disciplinary policy and then an exclusionary policy and maybe even a police policy? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what, what was it? Um, so that's a whole set of things. I, I couldn't understand how that got into it. But let's take very briefly here the issue of noise in libraries. Um, and, and this I, I'd rather leave a little bit more open because uh, on the one hand people may say certain traditional, uh, traditionally and also factually certain people do not want a lot of noise in the library. They use the library as a quiet space. Mm -hmm. They want to study. They want to, I don't know, do quiet things. Um, and uh, uh, you know, other people, in this case middle school students, use the library in a much more, let's say, boisterous, verbally boisterous manner. So you have a couple of choices here. One is to say, well, sorry, we have, we have a rule, which is what the library did. You can say, we have different ways of using the library. So if, if this would be the opposite extreme, if you don't like a lot of noise, tune it out. Just learn to tune it out. It takes mental discipline, but hell, we have to do that every day. We have to tune out things we don't like. We have to screen out things. Screen out the noise. You'll be fine. Zen. You know, take a, take a, take a, a, a cooler position. The third thing is to separate populations by how they want to use the library into different spaces. So I think Maplewood was rightly accused of taking the first and ignoring the other two, or other several options that they could have done. And that's what I want to see as libraries uh, and institutions and society saying, oh, there's really several options here. There's not just one. We don't have to call the cops. Well, to be, to be fair, too, I think the, the, the more recent uh, data on that story was that they, they did, in response to the overwhelming uh, response they got from libraries nationally, they did revisit their policies. I don't know the degree to which they've been successful, but I do know that they've responded to that. Well, they did hire somebody to work specifically with young people, so again, that's a recognition of, of uh, you know, the Some fact points. that there are diverse populations using the library in diverse ways. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's ask a, a final sort of an exit question. Um, what, uh, what new projects are you working on, and, and what is this thing you referred to earlier as youth backs? Well, the projects I've been working on have been a continuation of, of the, again, statistical investigations, because I'm very interested in whether people have legitimate reasons, you know, again, that we can establish based on their own statements of what they're afraid of, to be afraid. So there's that whole aspect that, that is continuing. Uh, youthfacts.org, and, and there's so much work that needs to be done on this, um, is basically to look at, again, what statements do people say about young people that can be numerically evaluated. You know, people just say, I don't like young people and I'm not willing to discuss it, can't go any further. But if they say young people today are more suicidal than they were in the past, which to me is absolutely untrue, then we have to pin them down on how they would know that, how, by what measure would they say that. And then we can look up the measures that they themselves have indicated and see if that's what they show, and they almost never do. So Youth Facts has, has really come about as, a, as an investigatory, a critical, and interrogatory, I guess, ideal that we have yet to realize, but hopefully uh, with a little more work over the next few years, we're going to improve this site quite a bit. It's free, that's, you know, and uh, so it's, it's, it's worth the price you paid and visit it. Hmm. Uh, and what else? Um, that's mainly it, just continuing research. I'm trying to put together books and things like that, but this is really a narrowing climate for discussion, and it has to be forced back open. And there are tendencies that are doing that, and those tendencies are hopeful. 
Well, then uh, let me make a, a closing statement uh, by inviting people to visit youthfacts.org. Uh, youthfacts, one word. Youthfacts, one word, dot org. And uh, on behalf of the faculty here at uh, SLIS, I uh, want to thank you for spending time with us today. Um, and uh, come back when you're, when you're in the neighborhood. Thank you. Thank you.